0: So he asked me to go and sit on that jump seat to help look out, which is what I did. And we tacked it out to the runway. No problem at all. Callum had got a good grip of everything. And we got clearance to take off. We thundered down that runway. And we climbed about three or 400 feet when we had an emergency. And I knew, as Callum was wrestling with the controls, I knew that in the next two seconds, What I chose to do would fundamentally affect the outcome and whether I and everybody else on board that aircraft that day survived or not.
1: Hello, I'm Rita Hyland and you're about to discover what it means to position your business, career and life to play full out. This show explores the way leaders just like you embrace and achieve their ambition without working harder or grinding it out any longer. So if you want to take your life, business, or career to a playing full out status and do so while being the happiest high performer in the room, then hang with me because this show shares everything you need to know using the best of neuroscience, transformational psychology, and a bit of spiritual wisdom to help you change fast, even when it's uncomfortable or scary, or you failed to do so in the past. All this so that you can enjoy more freedom and prosperity in your business and life. I'm happy you're here. Today, I am very excited because I'm bringing to you a very special interview with speaker, teacher, and author, Peter Docker. Peter teaches people how to navigate the challenge of leadership. His latest book, Leading from the Jump Seat, delivers the message that leadership is about lifting people up and giving them the space they need so that when the time is right, they can take the lead. Co-author of Find Your Why and formerly a founding igniter at Simon Sinek Inc., Peter draws on his 25-year career in the Royal Air Force and over 14 years spent partnering with businesses around the world to inspire others to lead from the jump seat. Peter, I am so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Rita. It's an absolute delight to be on your show. Thank you for having me. You are coming to us from London, which they're going to be able to tell when we hear a little bit more of your fabulous accent. I really do get excited to be able to connect us over You know, over the water, because it reminds us all that we are globally connected. So thank you again for making that extra special. And as I have already told you effusively, I that I absolutely love your book. I have dog eared it, I have highlighted it, I have outlined it, and I have referred it on to others, and they've got it already in their hands over here in the States. And I know you're all around the world, but I have already been one of those who's become a big fan. And one of the many reasons that I've enjoyed it is because I really enjoyed meeting you through the book. And so, would you start, if you will, to share a little bit about yourself? Uh,
0: Of course. I'll I'll pick
1: up on something you just mentioned there. We're we're talking
0: across the the pond, and it brings us close together. Over my years, I've visited 93 countries. Wow. And so, I've still got a few more to go, but that's quite a number of countries. Uh, And the thing that fills me with joy is that Although we're from different backgrounds, cultures, languages, what brings us together is so much more than what separates us and keeps us apart. And that, for me, is one of the great messages of hope that I've picked up over my years of travel and different um, areas where I've worked. But yes, I, I started my working career in the Royal Air Force. It feels like about 200 years ago, but I joined when I was about 20 years old, and I joined as a pilot as an officer. And I was with the Royal Air Force for 25 years, about 12 of which I flew as a pilot, because after you get promoted to a certain level, you no longer are flying. You're taking people, like, taking care of the people who do the flying. But as well as a pilot, I did many other things. So I was a negotiator on behalf of NATO when the Berlin Wall came down, which was fascinating. Uh, I've negotiated with uh, your state department on export licensing. I've run A $20 billion procurement program. I taught leadership in the Defence College here in the UK. And it was an exciting time. Um, I flew the Prime Minister at the age of 25. I was one of the few pilots selected to fly our Prime Minister around, which was quite eye opening. So I had a, a fabulous time in the Royal Air Force. One of the biggest challenges I had from a leadership perspective was leading a couple of hundred people during the 2003. Iraq war, which uh, was a big challenge and uh, weighs heavily on me just because I needed to take care of my people. Um, But after about 25 years, I thought, you know what, there's more I could do. So I actually left and I joined a consultancy in London and we worked globally. Nothing to do with the military, nothing to do with flying, but everything to do with people. And we worked in high-risk industries such as oil and gas, construction, mining, where typically a lot of people tend to get killed or injured during work. So what we did was help create cultures where people took care of one another and everyone went home safe. And I worked on mega projects in the Middle East, in Kazakhstan, in Africa, and that was fabulous. But after about three years, I thought, you know what, there's more I could do. It was around about that time that uh, Simon Sinek, and published his TED talk, uh, start with why, and I reached out to Simon. And long story short, we we got together. I then spent about eight years helping take his message around the world. And as you mentioned, I was co-author with David Mead and Simon on the book Find Your Why. But after about eight years, I thought there's more I could do. So uh, both David Mead, in fact, the other co-author, and I stepped away from Simon to develop our own work. And that brings us up to date because that resulted in the book you've mentioned, Leading Mm -hmm. from the Jump Seat. Mm -hmm. And here we are now talking about it.
1: That's excellent. Lots of experience and expertise that you bring to this book. And one of the things that you mentioned is that the jump seat is a metaphor for how we choose to lead and how we create cultures. Can you tell us specifically what a jump seat is? Why it was one that you chose, and how it relates to leadership? Of course.
0: Well, I used to fly
1: large aircraft.
0: I, I wasn't good enough to fly the fighter jet, so I, I flew the big <laughs> passenger aircraft, about the size of um, perhaps a 767 7 that you go on holiday. And I, I, The aircraft I, I flew carried around about 140 people. And the, the, the jump seat is a third seat on many large aircraft uh, on the flight deck. And it's situated immediately behind the two pilots. You know, when you're sat there, you can literally put your hand on the shoulders of the two pilots. Usually it's empty, but qualified crew can sit there to hitch your ride home or, or whatever. And the the story that, that prompted the title for the book was when I was in the Royal Air Force and I was a senior guy and I was just certifying a brand new captain. And this guy, Callum. Uh, he'd been a first officer or a co-pilot for, for many years, and he'd just gone through the six months of in-depth training you receive to become a captain, the, the person in charge of the entire aircraft. And the last part of this process was for someone very experienced, such as me, to do a final certification by checking him as we flew from London over to Washington Dulles and then on to San Francisco. And as we flew into San Fran, it's a very busy airport, as you'll probably be aware. And uh, Callum did a great job. And we landed, taxied in, the passengers got off, and it was with great pride I could turn to Callum and say, "Wonderful job! You're fully signed up now. You're fully certified. We're stopping here the night, but in the morning, you've got a regular co-pilot joining you. I'll be down the back with the rest of the passengers, and you take us back eastwards towards Washington." And that was a great moment. And uh, because he'd worked hard for it. The following morning, he was doing his pre-flight preparation that he had to do. And I was sitting there reading a magazine, staying out of the way. He came up to me. He said, excuse me, sir. Because I was his senior, senior officer in the airport. He said, excuse me. He said, look, it's very busy here out of San Fran during rush hour in the morning. He said, can you come and sit on the jump seat to act as an extra pair of eyes just to watch as we taxi out to avoid other aircraft, make sure we go the right way? I said, yes, Captain, of course. Uh, and I remember at the time, that was quite a courageous thing to do because, you know, he's just had six months of people watching over his shoulder. And um, this was his chance just to put that all behind it. But no, he was connected to a high purpose, which was the safety of the airplane and everybody on board. So he asked me to go and sit on that jump seat to help look out, which is what I did. And we tacked it out to the runway, no problem at all. Callum had got a good grip of everything, and we got clearance to take off. We thundered down that runway, and we climbed about three or 400 feet when we had an emergency. Mm. And I knew, as Callum was wrestling with the controls, I knew that in the next two seconds, what I chose to do would fundamentally affect the outcome and whether I and everybody else on board that aircraft that day Survived or not. Mm. And here's the thing I did absolutely nothing. I sat there with my hands in my lap, quite calmly, because in that moment, I needed not to be a great leader, I needed to become a great follower. Mm
1: -hmm. I
0: needed to have Callum feel that I had his back, and I needed to stay out of the way so he could do his job. Now, if I thought he couldn't have done his job and you know, sorted out the situation, I would have had no business signing him up the day before as a fully qualified captain. And This made me think, you know, leading from the jump seat, it's a metaphor because wherever we are in business or leading teams, at some stage, we will hand over control. It's inevitable. You know. If the CEO of the company, we will retire. If we are leading a team of people, chances are we'll move on to another team. Or heck, even as a parent, you know, eventually our kids grow up, leave home, and start to lead their own lives. So handing over control is inevitable. Leading from the jump seat is all about how do we lead intentionally to set those people up so as when the time is right, they can take the lead and they can carry forward those things that we feel are deeply important to us long after we've taken that step back. So that's what Jump Seat Leadership is all about.
1: Mm -hmm. Love, love. Early in the book, you mentioned something that is important and I think that runs throughout the book. is That is the difference between a stand and a position. And it was powerful and it it, it is a theme that goes throughout. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between a stand and a position and perhaps give an example?
0: Of course. I I find that in in language, it's really helpful when we have distinctions in language, and we put meaning to words because it helps us to have different conversations and therefore get different results. And this is the case with stand and position. So let's take position first of all, a position is against something or someone. You know and we can hear a lot of that language in the world at the moment, whether it's in politics or or in business people taking up positions against others. And that's fine, but it has a limitation. A position can only exist when there's a counterposition. When that counterposition is no longer there, your position dissolves because there's nothing to have a position against. A stand, though, is different. A stand is for something. And the beauty of a stand is that It doesn't depend on anyone else or anything else to exist. It can exist all on its own. You know, it's like planting a flag on an island saying, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe in. And ships that go sailing past, they can see what you stand for. And if they agree with that, they can come and join you on your island. But here's the thing, and this is the important thing. If they don't agree, they can sail on past. And that is genuinely okay. All right? Mm-hmm. So, I'll give you a quick example. And it's a real example. It happens almost on a weekly basis for me. We live out in the countryside, and there are quite narrow roads going through the f- fields. And there's only enough room for one car to pass at a time. You know, you have to pull into a passing place to allow the other car going the other way to pass. But quite often, you'll find two cars, one going one way, the other going the other way, and they meet. Bumper to bumper, as we'd say, or fender to fender, as you'd say. And they each take up a position against the other driver. And what that position might look like is you were going too fast. You need to back up. Or my journey is more important than yours. You need to give way. And the thing with positions is that people will become more and more entrenched in those positions, not wanting to give way. But here's the thing what if you have a situation like I've described? but immediately the two cars come fender to fender, one person reverses up to a passing place to let the other driver go. And that is because they have a stand, a stand for being courteous on the road. Mm-hmm. What happens to the other guy's position? Well, it just dissolves because there's no counter position. And he goes on his way. But importantly, your stand has been reinforced. Yeah. So we can apply this in business. We can apply this in parenting, which, by the way, I think is one of the biggest leadership challenges that many of us face. And whenever we feel ourselves taking up a position against someone, it's really worth digging deeper and uncovering, well, what what does that represent in terms of a stand for something? Because it's likely to generate many more opportunities and possibilities for finding a path ahead.
1: Yeah it is a distinction. It seems simple, but it is significant. And I, I've noticed and sort of I've looked at it and practiced with it. And if we weren't so inherently inclined to go into a, to have a position and said, reconsidered and had the stand, I do think a lot of things can change. Um, an opportunity, as you say, exists with that.
0: It's a, I mean, very quickly, I, I had this with my son he, he's uh, late 20s now, but when he was turning 18, he wanted to get a big, powerful motorbike, a Suzuki Bandit. And it would have been very easy for me to take a position to say, no way, Jose, you're going to get that because it's dangerous around here. His, one of his best friends had almost been killed not long prior to that on a motorbike. And it would have been very easy as a pa- parent to say, no way you're going to do that. And that would have turned into a position. And equally, my son would have taken up a counter position. So he, he would have found some way to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It didn't turn out that way because I chose to take a stand instead. And you can read the full story in the book and the, yeah. the fresh opportunities and how it deepened our relationship.
1: It's powerful. It's very, very powerful. And I do think it's very important in parenting especially. I, I say that truth is consistent, and I've learned that long ago. And, and that's something that I've appreciated throughout the book is that you are what you, as you say, whether you're leading yourself, whether you're leading, you know, you're the CEO of a, a company or you're parenting, these, all of these uh, practices apply. Absolutely, because it's all about people. Mm hmm. hmm.
0: You know, that, that's, the, that's the
1: common denominator. Yes. And how we influence. One of the things that I notice is a great limitation or inhibitor to extraordinary leadership is this idea when we're leading from our ego. And can you explain what you consider or you know call ego and what that means to you and how to notice, first of all, when we are in ego or coming from our ego? And then because I think it can often be, it's hard to see when you're in the fishbowl and what you call the antidote to ego course
0: this this goes back to uh, another two words actually everything that we do in life everything that's important to us is driven just by one of two things everything it's either driven by fear or it's driven by love now I'll come back to love because in a business context people tend to get a bit jittery when I start talking about love but that's okay <laughs> we'll come back to it so that, let's look at fear first you know Fear is triggered when we sense that our life is on the line, and that's good because it has us jump back from the oncoming car or whatever it is. You know that That's good. It triggers that reaction. But most times, our lives are not on the line. But fear can be triggered as well when we sense that our livelihood, our status, or our reputation is on the line. And that's when fear tends not to be very helpful at all. Because in those situations, when our livelihood, status, or reputation is threatened, fear shows up as perhaps like anger or at the other extreme, timidity. You know, we take a a big step back and just disengage. And we see the world as a place of scarcity. And we close down our view rather than thinking about others, we just think about ourselves. It all becomes about me. And that's where the big one tends to arise, which is ego. And ego is Greek. For I. We just think about ourselves. And when we're leading others, well, actually, when we're just leading ourselves, ego in those situations tends not to be helpful at all because it drives us to take decisions which end up hurting other people. You know, we forget about our team, we forget about the customers we serve. It's all about me. But here's the thing: we always have a choice. And that choice is to see fear as a warning flag. Mm-hmm and instead recognize that it could trigger that ego and instead sort ourselves from a place of love now love in business looks like seeing the world as a place of possibility and opportunity rather than scarcity it's about reminding ourselves that we're in service of our team and the people that we serve our customers our clients rather than just ourselves and importantly instead of ego we choose to lead with humble confidence And humble confidence is about being absolutely confident around your strengths and your abilities and resolute, and this is really important, resolute on where you're heading. But also having the humility to listen and particularly listen to your team and invite them to help you figure out the solutions to the challenges that you're facing. So that's the opportunity. We will often be triggered by fear. But we always have a choice to be sourced from love, and what links fear and love is courage. Courage cannot exist without fear, but it can only be sustained for the love for something
1: mm. and that's
0: the opportunity we have
1: yeah, very powerful. How do you apply like if you is there a personal example that you have, perhaps or a story where you know I guess that's the basis of all of of, of some of your practices, but give a story around where you could choose it have have made a choice of fear and made it and were able to wake yourself up and instead make it from love.
0: Well, very briefly, I, I think the the extreme for me was the 2003 Iraq War, where I found myself leading 200 people, this part of 200 people, and we flew large, undefended, unarmed aircrafts. Um, which were air refueling tankers, and we gave gas away to to fighter jets. That was our job. We we flew around in circles, and people on the ground tended to shoot at us, which became a little bit irritating after a while. But here's the the thing, you know i I, I thought on the first night of the uh, the war, I, I would lose many of the forty people I saw off in aircraft that night because we were sitting ducks, literally, and that would be. Very easy to, to source ourselves from a place of fear, because for all of us, our life, our livelihood, status, and mm-hmm. reputation—they are all on the line. <laughs> yeah, you know, so this is as real as it gets, and so we could have been hijacked by fear, but that would not have helped us in that situation. Uh, so actually, where we sourced ourselves from was love. We may not have used those words, but this has nothing to do with the politics, but instead, it had everything to do with ensuring that we did our job. Because if we didn't do our job, those fighter jets would not get refueled. If those fighter jets did not get refueled, then they wouldn't be able to provide the air support that American, British, and Australian troops needed on the ground. And if they didn't get that air support, those troops on the ground would die. Mm -hmm. And it was simple as that. So my people put themselves in harm's way Driven not by fear, but by the love for people who wore similar uniforms to them, who they never met, but were absolutely relying on them to do their job. And I've never seen such an extraordinary display of morale, camaraderie, dedication as I saw over the four and a half months there.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, it was uh, incredible. Now, take that and put it into business. Context. Uh, I tell the story in the book about Kath, who runs or still runs a a small uh, printing business. And one year she had one of her big contracts removed, which uh, the contract was cancelled, taken over by a competitor, and she lost 70% of her revenue overnight. Now, fear could have kicked in there. Yeah. Fear, ego could have kicked in. The business had been going since 1922. She was the CEO. Uh, fear of failing on her watch, her reputation, her status, that could have kicked in. But instead, she chose love. And what that looked like was doing everything she could to support her people to ensure they could still pay their mortgages. And that opened up all sorts of different opportunities and innovation, which, again, I've mentioned in the book. The headline is that they're still going strong. Yeah, That was in 2007, 2008. They're still going strong today. So, yes, fear and love, it can show up in lots of different ways. And to recognize when we're being triggered by fear, just ask ourselves, is it because of our ego? Is it about our status, our reputation, our livelihood? And just see as an opportunity to instead source ourselves from the love for something, which generally has a lot to do with other people yeah. just serving rather than just serving ourselves.
1: Yeah, both of those examples are are fabulous. I appreciate the second one as well about the c- cat because it's relevant to you know leaders today who are you know challenged obviously with business. I think we should add, but maybe I should save it for people that everybody came home from your absolutely modern, healthy oh. and alive, which was quite a testament to you. Well, thank and you. Then-
0: I mean, it, it, I see it as well that the most important successes of my my time during that part of my career, but I I would also say that this is about results, other results too. We were tasked with 479 missions. Mm. We flew 479 missions. And this is an aircraft that was at the time well over 40 years old, probably 50 years old. We didn't have sufficient spares. Um, There were sandstorms, searing heat in the desert, but we flew every mission that we were given. And that's a testament to my aircraft technicians, engineers, as well as all the air crew that flew the flew the missions.
1: One of the things that you mentioned, and and maybe is applicable to to how you led and, and, and maybe Kath as well is that you um that you say leaders need to find the simple message, cause, voice, and to in a world of so much noise that they really need to learn how to. Make things simple and bring it down. And I I think you began to do that when you were saying, you know, we talked it, you know, if this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen, if this doesn't happen, if this doesn't happen. And so everyone could hear and and, and see the simplicity of the message. Could you talk more to that and the importance of it and how you encourage leaders to do that?
0: Absolutely. Management's about handling complexity, but leadership's about creating simplicity. So, You know, everything in this world, it's either content or context. Content is what we do, the things that we say, the work we're engaged in. But content has got no meaning without context. Context is what gives meaning to what it is we're doing. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, content are all the puzzle pieces on the table. But they make no sense whatsoever until you see the picture on the puzzle box. That's Mm -hmm. the context. And quite often, we can be so focused on rearranging those puzzle pieces or trying to fit them together that no one is paying attention to what the picture on the box should be. And so, linking back to the previous story about the two thousand and three Iraq War, there was so much noise going on in terms of the the politics, in terms of um, the the conditions under which we were uh, going into Iraq, etc. All that noise. Was literally that noise in your head. And it it meant that if I allowed that to prevail, people would become unfocused. They wouldn't know which way to point. They would have doubts. What I needed to do was pull the, as I say, pull the signal up from the noise. It's like tuning in an old radio. Remember Mm -hmm. the old radios where it's all all that static? Yeah. Finding that signal, finding that channel that everyone then can relate to. And that was what I, probably more by, Accidentally designed to be perfectly honest, Risa. You know, I gathered all my people together the day before everything started and gave them that message about us needing to do our respective jobs because unless we did, people on the ground who are relying on us, we're going to die. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. that simple. Yeah. And I think I fell on that message, as I say, more by luck than, than intention. It's just the words that came out of my mouth. Yeah. So here's the thing if we are the senior person in any team or organization, if we're not making that picture on the puzzle box as clear and as vivid as possible, no one else is going to do it, because they're just going to focus on trying to jam these puzzle pieces together, mm-hmm. and they they go heads in, um, focused on their bit of the, uh, the the puzzle bit of the task. We've got to keep that picture as vivid as we possibly can, because it's that picture on the box that gives meaning to the work that we do. And when we can give that meaning to people, then they can figure out themselves how to bring those puzzle pieces together.
1: Yeah. Speaking to putting puzzle pieces together, we share some of the favorite movies, which were Hidden Figures and Apollo. I continue to watch those again. But you talk about You know, putting puzzle pieces together. And you refer to something called the warehouse of possibilities through use of maybe those, you know, those movies. Can you share a little bit more about that? I think that's uh, helpful for leaders to understand how to bring down things together, bring a team together, as well as to remain open, like you just referenced. Well, I I think it links very nicely,
0: actually, to what we're just saying a moment ago about painting the picture on the puzzle box. The, the warehouse of possibility. I, I use the, the great movie Apollo 13 uh, to illustrate this or draw from that. I think Apollo 13 is the best example I've seen, courtesy of Hollywood, to see pretty much everything I write about in Lean from the Jumpseat. seeing that in vivid action, courtesy of, of Hollywood. And Apollo 13, for those who don't recall, was the story of the Apollo mission. Uh, heading to the moon, that had an explosion about two thirds the way uh, to the moon, and that explosion took out many, many different systems, uh, including life support, um, propulsion, oxygen, electrical systems. And when it happened, you know, it'd be easy to imagine that all of those three astronauts on board, their lives were lost. They were hurtling away from the Earth towards the Moon, and uh, potentially no way to get back. Fortunately in charge in mission control that day in Houston was a fellow called Gene Kranz. And Gene was just 33 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. Incredible. He was a former Vietnam, um, Vietnam vet, former pilot, military pilot. But what he did so well was to crystallize everyone around the new mission. You know, we talk about context. Our job as a leader is to either create, illuminate, or illuminate that context or shift the context. Now, the original context of the Apollo 13 mission was to get three astronauts uh, to the moon, two of them onto the surface of the moon, collect samples, et cetera, and bring them home. The context needed a shift. Moon was no longer the objective. It was just getting those three astronauts back safely to Earth. That was the new context. And what Gene Kranz did so brilliantly was to paint that new picture and say, um, you know, failure is not an option. We've got to bring those three astronauts all the way back to Earth with time to spare. And what he did when he said those words, he created what I call a warehouse of possibility. And the warehouse of possibility is a bit like a big empty warehouse, nothing in it. But it represents, in this case, the possibility of bringing all those three astronauts home safe. Generally, in the warehouse of possibility, there's one guy in an office, and that office is the office of it can't be done. And we've all come across that person, you know, when we've got a great project in front of us and there's someone saying, "Ah, that's never going to happen, is it? And they can be quite quite irritating, but actually they're really important because that person will throw up all the reasons that they can think of that your project is going to fail. And that gives us things to work on. And then people who are inspired by your warehouse of possibility, the possibility in this case, of bringing those three astronauts home safely, they come and build their offices inside that empty warehouse. Mm. And the first office might be, well, we figured out how to keep the astronauts alive. The second would be perhaps we figured out how to navigate them back to the Earth. The third will be, well, we figured out heat shield problems, the re-entry problems. Eventually, this big empty warehouse is filled up with all of these new offices. Each representing a part of the answer to the puzzle that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And eventually there's no room for that guy who doubted, you know, he, he leaves that warehouse and actually probably comes back later because he then sees the possibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. None of that would have been possible unless the leader, Gene Kranz, had stood up and created Mm -hmm. that empty warehouse of possibility where people could get to work. And that's our role as a leader.
1: Absolutely. Very powerful. I'm going to ask you some really... How do your practical application of, of things that I see going on today? By the numbers, systemically, I, there is a problem with leaders being overwhelmed and overextended. And I feel like your philosophy and your practices are something that, that, that can be very helpful. When you dig deeper into... These problems, what I tend to see and what they tend to see is that they believe that they have to have all of the answers, and that creates an anxiety which of course um, negatively impacts performance and productivity. What do you say to leaders who find themselves in overwhelm and tend to be overextended how How are you responding to them, and what do you offer uh, first of all, embrace it
0: you know we are all trained we are conditioned to be the one who can put the hand up with the answer think about it when you're at school teacher asks a question you put your hand up you get rewarded or acknowledged for knowing the answer mm-hmm. and then perhaps we get particularly good in some areas and we go on to college maybe so you get more specialized and we come out with that college degree say in computer programming and we're hired because of our skill of knowing the answer to computer programming problems. And if we get really, really good, we'll get promoted. And then all of a sudden, we're no longer the one doing the computer programming. We're taking care of the people who do the programming, and we've had no training whatsoever in that new role. And so what happens? We revert to type, which is, I've got to be the cleverest person in the room. I've got to be the one with the answer. But here's the thing. If you're always the one who has to be the answer, have to have the answer to the problems you're facing as a team, you then become the constriction in the pipe. The team can only progress as quickly as your own knowledge will allow. And this actually links back to our earlier part of the conversation, Rita. (laughs) Being attached to being the one who, who knows the answer, that comes from a place of fear because it's about status and reputation. But if we embrace humble confidence, which comes from love, that gives us the ability to put up our hand and say, Look, people, we've got this challenge. I don't know the answer to it. But let me paint the picture on the box, the reason why we've got to figure it out. And then I'm going to support you, give you all you need to help figure out this problem. What do you got? And this is when we have this pivotal moment where no longer are we attached to being the person who has to have the answer. and We are instead focused on being the person who asks the important questions. And we empower our team to help figure out the solutions. And that's when we tap into what I refer to as the collective genius of our team. And that's exactly what Gene Kranz did in Apollo 13. And here's where it links directly to your question. When we let go of being the one who has to know the answer, suddenly we find that we have free time because we're focused on keeping that picture on the box as vivid as possible. And instead, we're focused as well on on lifting others up so they can figure out the solutions to the challenges we face. There's one guy uh, in the book I mentioned, Lieutenant General Sir James Dutton, KCB, CBA. He's been knighted twice by Her Majesty the Queen. He's is a fantastic leader. I had the privilege of working alongside him in the Ministry of Defence years ago. And he led British and American Marines into combat during the 2003 Iraq war. And it was with huge delight over the last six, eight months. I've reconnected with uh, Sir Jim Dutton and, after twenty odd years, and, and he he took me back to the Iraq War. He said, "You know what?" He said, "On the night of the uh, uh, of the Iraq War, just before we we're about to advance, he said I 'I've nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do.' He said because I had all these great people on my team, and they knew precisely how they were going to bring their piece of the jigsaw puzzle to connect with others." He said, "All I had to do was to stand back, be ready to support them." but then let them get on with it. Mm -hmm. So if any leaders out there think they've got too much on their plate and uh, feel overstressed, well, just think of that story. Sir James Dutton leading thousands of multinational troops in a major uh, military operation, and on the night before the advance, he had nothing to do. Why? Because he had the humble confidence to give people under his command the space they needed so they could figure out and put the action put the plan into action it's a great example by the way all of those fear drivers were were potentially present you know uh, their life livelihood status and reputation was on the line but even in those circumstances they had the humble confidence to empower his people to lift them up so they could lead right
1: and and this goes a little bit, you something that you mentioned, which I think and I, I see re- relevant with at least some of the people that I've talked to, is that the difference of, of when they're making that transition between being an expert, and I think that is where the bottleneck gets in, is that they think they need to now be the super expert as they go when it is a, actually a time to be, as you refer to it, a leader of experts. Say anything that you want on on that distinction yeah. and, and make that transition perhaps easier. Yeah, well, I,
0: I think a, a few things make that transition easy. First of all, it's giving yourself permission to reflect and, and, and take a moment. Yeah. That, that's the starting point. So often, we're running so fast, we don't have time to stop and get a bike, which would allow us to go quicker. Well, this is the bike, all right? But we need to stop uh, to make use of it. And actually, where it starts is getting very clear on what's deeply important to you. Okay, and so if you want to lead others better, we need to figure out how to lead ourselves better, I think. And that's an ongoing process, but it starts with this. What is deeply important to you? I'm not talking about the latest iPhone or your next paycheck. No. What are those non-negotiables in your life? Now, to give an example, for many of us, family is deeply important. Yeah, I remember a couple of years ago, my wife uh, gave me a phone call. She'd been involved in a car accident. There is nothing on this earth which have stopped me from dropping everything and going to a raid. It was only a couple of miles down the road. Just pause on that for a moment because think about it. I was stepping into the unknown. I didn't know what I was going to find, but there was no hesitation in taking those steps forward Okay, because there's this big reservoir of energy that drives you forward even when you don't know the answer or you don't know what you're going to find. So, if we tap into other things that are equally important to us, um, and I explain how to do this in in the book, one of those deeply important things for me is mutual respect. If I sense that people aren't being respected and that respect being returned, that really grips me. That will help me step forward into the unknown uh, when other times I, I wouldn't, you know? And so, when we can identify these non negotiables, They can turn into stands that we discussed earlier. And when we put those stands into action, they become commitments. Yeah. So come back to leading that team to, to, to letting go of being the one who was also, sorry, always knows the answer. This is where our stands come in. Those things that are deeply important to us because it acts, they act as a handrail to guide us when we're stepping in to the unknown. It gives us the courage to choose love over fear. It gives us the courage, therefore, to lead with humble confidence rather than ego. It gives us the courage to put our hand up and say, look, I don't know the answer to this challenge that we're facing, but let me paint the picture, the reason why it's so important that we've got to figure it out. And it's that reservoir of energy of our non-negotiables, as I refer to them, that helps us to step into that unknown. So knowing ourselves is so, so valuable when we're leading others in crisis or in times of uncertainty, because otherwise there isn't a roadmap, there isn't a checklist to follow. But what we do have that's available to all of us are those things, those non-negotiables, and those together act as the guide that we need to take that courageous step forward when otherwise we might freeze or (laughs) not do anything or try and take control to tighten our grip That's what we do in crisis when we don't know the answer. We tend to tighten our grip when actually the exact opposite is what we need. We need to loosen our grip to paint the picture on the box and invite our team to help figure out the parts of the solution that we need.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. One other topic I want to make sure that we hit upon is something that's so prevalent and relevant to to leaders today, and it's the the part about building culture. I mean, we've referenced a lot of things about leadership so far, but jump seats leadership is also referring to how we create our cultures. And, you know, creating cultures become more difficult as we are at home. And many people are working from home or, or, or leaders are working to get people back into the office places. Can you speak to sort of how you create and cultivate that? Atmosphere of belonging, and that an an example perhaps of when you've seen it done well that was noteworthy, and um, how leaders who are in the are facing these challenges today, how they can begin to apply some of maybe a practice that you have.
0: You you touched on the word belonging there. Jump seat leadership. Uh, I break it down to three practices. One is commitment. And that's all about the promise you make to yourself, what's deeply important to you. The second is humble confidence that we've spoken about. Uh, and that, that taps into our, our stands and our commitments. But the third is nurturing a sense of belonging. And I think that is an essential role for anyone who chooses to lead. Because here's the thing, when we feel that we belong to a team, a group, an organization, we will step up and we will take responsibility above and beyond all those things that we're accountable for, you know? So I'll give you a very simple example because this is so important. Years ago, when our kids were young, they'd play out in the street. It was a quiet street, you know, it was safe. They'd they'd play outside with with the neighbor's kids. They'd be quite happy there. But if we saw uh, someone we didn't recognize or a car, we would go out and we'd take accountability for our own kids, of course. Because we were their parents, but we'd also choose to take responsibility for our neighbor's kids. Why? Because we belonged to that community. We wanted to contribute to that community. We knew what role we had to play, what we could bring to the table. Yeah. You know? And so it is in any team or organization. If we nurture that sense of belonging, people will step up. They'll bring their initiative, they'll bring their Critical thinking and problem solving to the table, way, way beyond anything they've signed a contract to do. Yeah. So, how do we nurture that sense of belonging? Very simply, we show that we care. It's as simple and as challenging as that. You know, how do we show that we care? We give the one thing that we cannot replace, and that is our time.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And we don't need to spend that much time, in fact. During the, um, the Iraq war, I've mentioned several times now, uh, we were working 24-7. Uh, I probably worked about 18-plus hours a day, every day, and that was supporting my people, making sure they had everything they needed to do their job. But even though I was so busy, I would take the opportunity whenever I could to chat to my people, to sit down over a coffee with our back to you know, a wall or a sandbag or whatever it was, and just check in with them, ask them how things were at home. You know, I remember three people, three of my people, we had to get them home quickly because a grandparent was dying. But we would move heaven and earth to get them back. It was just what we did. What does that show to that person? It shows that we care. What do you think it did to their loyalty and dedication? Well, that went up through the roof, as it did, by the way, to all the other people on the team because it was demonstration that we cared. We didn't make a song and dance about it. It's just something that we did. Yeah. And so it is with our, our, our people on a day-to-day basis, giving them some time, checking in, how are things? How, how's your family? But come from a place of genuine curiosity. Not like you're going through a checklist. Oh, I haven't spoken to him for a while, I'll go and speak to him. No. Do it from a place of genuine curiosity. You want to learn. And here's the biggest thing I've learned, you know, <laughs> with regards to this. Part of us, we, we all like to think that we're making a difference in the world, ultimately. You know, we want to be significant. What I say is if you want to be significant, think small, not big. You know, when people read my background or bio, they see all headlines. That actually is meaningless. It's about the small, often fleeting moments we have one-to-one with people. Moments that probably we forget quite quickly, but sometimes they will remember for the rest of their lives. That is what being significant is all about. And when we are significant to others, that shows that we care. They feel they belong, and that generates a culture where people just want to be a part of it. They want to contribute. And all this stuff I've mentioned, give you an example. It's in detail in the book, but ASOS, they are a global fashion retail company. They sell in over 200 territories. They've got over 450,000 product lines. They have 5,000 new products a week, and they have 4,000 people. The average age is just 27. And it's a very creative industry. When you go around their headquarters, as I have in London, there are people sitting on, a, on the floor having creative-type meetings. It seems all very, well, very fashion, very creative. But what they deliver has military precision. Where new products are photographed in the morning in their studios, they're available online in the afternoon in every size you could imagine, in every territory that you could imagine in the world. That takes military precision. Actually, what it takes is a sense of belonging for each and every one of the people there. And that was something that Nick Baton, the CEO, until very recently, that's what he promoted. So this works at scale in industry and in business.
1: Yes. In some ways, we do make it more complicated than it yeah. perhaps it needs. Like you said, it's, it's, it's that simple and maybe, and, and, and yet it's, we want it to be more complicated or a 10-point bullet. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, to your point, actually, Rita, it, it builds on what we were saying before. If we develop the humble confidence to be focused instead not on knowing the answer, but on asking the important questions and empowering our team to figure it out, that gives us more time. Mm-hmm. And it gives us the time to keep that picture on the box as vivid as possible. It gives us the time to check in with our people. It gives us the time to to make the phone call or send the text. You know, when we are uh, not in the f- same physical space as our our team, you know, quite often you ask for for simple things. When someone I've worked with or a colleague pops into my head, I send them a text. Say, hey, think of you. How's it going? You know, and that's because I'm genuinely curious about how they're doing. Does it take long? No takes 30 seconds even with my fat fingers on a phone you know but the impact i over the years i've had so many occasions when people have come to me uh, and said you know your text landed just at the right moment thank you you know it, it's it's about the opportunities we see to be that pebble in the pond you know right. when you throw a pebble in the pond the ripples that go out we have no idea how far they will go and continue and the more opportunities when we're leading others, more opportunities we can find to be that pebble in the pond. The, great, the greater the likelihood is, we're going to have a significant impact on people's lives.
1: That's that's wonderful. That's I think that's a perfect place to stop. I, you know, I could talk to you and ask you questions forever, but I think that we need to make everybody go out and buy the book. And I really do. I really do um, encourage encourage the read. It's an exciting book with such simple, I think, and and, and practical application. And I think what maybe might not have come across completely is that people need to know that this is a guide. You do have very specific, you know, suggestions, things, as you say, to consider uh, as a leader as it pertains to many of the distinctions that you make. But this is something, this is a book you can pick up and you can read and you can um, learn more about leading from the jump seat by going to www.leadingfromthejumpseat.com, which makes it very simple. And Peter, I'm just going to say thank you for sharing your experience, your tremendous insight, your expertise. And do you want to share what you're, what you're excited about that's going forward? Yeah,
0: well, um, it, it builds on what you've just said, actually, Rita. The the book "Lean from the Jump Seat" is a how-to guide. You know, wherever you are in life, whether you're just starting out, whether you are in flow at work, whether you are just leading a team or about to take a step back as a senior person, it's all there and I, I show how to put those ideas into practice. But what I'm focused on at the moment is building uh, a course uh, where uh, it's not dependent on me, but there'll be lots of videos of me setting up the uh, uh, the exercises and the case studies, which will include Apollo 13 and lots of exciting stuff about being faced with crash landing an airplane as I was uh, and what we can learn from it. And helping people to put these ideas into practice on the daily basis, wherever they work and in life in general, actually. So, yeah, I'm really excited by that.
1: Well, congratulations. I will look forward to hearing and seeing more of you and um, seeing you even more in the States, as we talked about earlier. But in the meantime, just know uh, I think that you for sure accomplished your mission today, which was to lift people up and to share. And uh, for that, we are very, very grateful. Thank you.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Risa. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: Thank you for being with me today. By you listening to this, it tells me you're interested in growing yourself and likely not just for yourself, but to positively influence others as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share this with your friends and colleagues. When leaders like you grow yourself and then grow others, we all are positively impacted. If you have questions, I'm here to answer them and may even use them in our upcoming podcasts. Go ahead. You can send those questions to breakthrough at com. Remember, a half version of you is not enough. The world needs the full version of you at play. I look forward to seeing you on our next podcast.